ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Giant Time is here. That's right, we're talking Wes Craven's new nightmare on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from 1428 Elm Street via Tarzana. This is the Kill by Kill podcast. We bring, where, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. We're going to unpack all the gory details of Wes Craven's new nightmare in the hopes that uh, a unfortunate uh, all pairs death is not the, just the beginning of the jokes that we can make at their expense. I was struggling to think about who was killed in this movie. <laughs> for a second and as always there's only one person i trust that when i call her to tell her hey bob shea wants to meet i think you're going to like what he has to say she's gonna take that meeting the one the only gina radcliffe how are you doing today gina happy new year patrick just pretend, pretend i'm throwing confetti at you and i've got one <laughs> of those like little party blower paper thingies yes happy new year Happy New Year to you. I, and it's started so well in so many respects around the world. Uh, yeah, what absolutely. A, just off to a cracking good start. The future has never been brighter. <laughs> just just when you think that uh, the smoke gets in your eyes, it turns out it's from half a world away and no one's bothering to put it out. Yeah, it's it's super fun. But you know what? What is good? Wes Craven's new nightmare, Gina. It is. I have have not seen this movie in about 25 years (laughs) and and it is like, like a, like a, like a a nice cup of cold water after a hot day after a, a soothing warm shower after a pulled muscle. When you compare this to, to Freddy's dead, it's just, it's like a warm bath. It's just so soothing. It's a balm to the soul. It's just so (laughs) well done. It's so delightfully competent. It's so amazingly effective. It's wonderfully shot and executed in almost every shape and it's, form. It's got a Freddy that's actually kind of scary. Yeah. And, and and is what I would think of as a, a dead, mutilated, child molesting murderer. <laughs> yes, he's an entity. He's an idea. He's... Well, there's a whole lot of shit. But you know what? We're going to get into it, Gina, but I don't want to disturb you right now. But we are not alone. That's right. We have a special guest. Uh, Our guest this week is a writer for birthdeathmovies.com. And of course, can be read in book form in the horror movie A Day, which is still available on Amazon.com. I have it right here on my desk in front of me. And he is a kill-by-kill all-star. The one, the only the trivia champion reigning supreme, Brian Collins. How are you doing today, sir? I'm all right. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> we like now, enthusiasm in our guests. That's great. We're, <laughs> we're pumped. We're so ready to go. <laughs> we're just really enthused. We're not talking about Freddy's dead anymore. Yes. I would have declined an offer for that one, I think. <laughs> There's only so many things you'll do for the art that you love. So, Brian, uh, I reached out to you. I think you were you just happened to be watching it, or maybe you were just waxing philosophic about New Nightmare. And I said, oh, my God, do you want to continue this conversation when we eventually reach it? 
I probably, it was probably me reacting for the millionth time to some annoying person saying that, you know, it's, it's West doing the same thing he could do in stream because they're not <laughs> the same thing at all. No. The no. closest, I mean, yes, they both exist in a world where horror movies exist. That's about their only real connection. Oh, and W. Earl Brown is in them. Uh, <laughs> other than that, you know, it's very, very different beats, I think. Yeah. Subgenre, different, everything. Uh, I've never quite gotten the, you know, like, oh, New Nightmare is, is fine, but it's really just a warm up for what he'd perfect in Scream. Like, he didn't do anything like that in Scream. I think Scream 3 was closer to what they're doing in New Nightmare, and Scream 3 is terrible. So uh, I don't, uh, yeah. Well, whenever I see that, I bristle. It's one of those things that always drives me nuts because it seems like it's said by somebody that didn't understand one or both of the movies they were watching. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I think they're both, we'll get into it as we go, but well, why not start here? I think they're both meditations from a person who might be slightly regretting the direction of his career because at his universal run has some really interesting movies. They're full of big ideas. And I think their quality may vary here and there to the individual person's taste level. But you can't say that uh, that uh, people under the stairs or the serpent in the rainbow or shocker lack for ideas. But I also yeah. feel as a person who was a philosophy major, there's something about him approaching nightmare again where he's regretting some things or at least putting his participation in the horror sphere under a microscope and this is the result from that yeah i would agree with that i one thing that i had forgotten uh, about this movie that i particularly enjoyed and, and he didn't go into it too much but but enough that it was there is you know if you are if you're wondering what wes craven thought about freddy krueger becoming a sort of bizarre pop culture icon where there were action figures made of him and a hotline geared towards you know teens to call him it turns out he didn't think very highly of it <laughs> um, you know one of my favorite scenes is is when uh heather langenkamp was playing herself which is one of the interesting parts of the movie well, it's, the, it's the thrust of the movie she's on a talk show and they bring freddie out and you got people in the audience dressed like him and and you know and and this is you know pre-internet you know kind of digging at you know fan culture yeah. And how weird it was that, you know, the, you know, the audience decided to, yeah, this is our guy. The child murderer is our guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting movie from a meta standpoint. And I, I, I agree with you, Brian. I think Scream looks at a genre, um, particularly the slasher movie in a met, meta sense. And it's also from a different writer's point of view. And Wes is just, putting it on screen and imbuing it with all the tension and drama that he can bring to bear. Yeah. Whereas here, this is him really reflecting on are the ideas that I put out into the world good or bad? Can even bad ideas have a positive? Can something that I think is a positive have negative ramifications? And then what does that do to the other people who participate in this with me? I didn't remember the whole, you know, he's writing the script as it as it as he goes along, which which 
I, I thought it was kind of cool. Didn't always make a lot of sense. And, and I think it, it's, you know, it's one of those things where if you think about it too much, it's not really going to hold as much water as you would like it to. But, but I, I do find that, you know, he, he is in control of everything. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's kind of treating his actors like, like, you know, pawns in a chess game. And it's, you know, it's kind of a little, you know, uh, it's an interesting sort of, you know, take on how he feels about what he does about filmmaking in general. It's, 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 you know, it, it's very fascinating in that regard. One of the ongoing themes, I, I think of the movie is, have I ruined Heather Langenkamp's life? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, she, obviously this might be the most iconic thing that she ever did. She had a pretty good run on television as well. Yeah. And weirdly but, enough, I mean, ended I, up with a stalker I, as a result of the TV show. I think that the movie does acknowledge that this is that that's what she has known for. Yeah. And, and it makes one, it, it treats her like a human being. Like if this is the one thing that you're known for, how does that genuinely affect your life? How do other people look at you as the result of that? And it treats her rather fairly in the standpoint that she gets to voice frustration with it. She's very uh, in control of herself, even if she's not in control of the circumstances that surround her. And, but it also puts her through the fucking ringer. Like <laughs> Craven in, in short order kills her husband has the state declare that uh, she's unfit to parent a child. <laughs> like it's, and like kills her nanny. It, there's a lot, it, there's a lot that just, they Yeah, that, that's all that her. is true, but her hair looks better than ever. Oh, fuck. This, <laughs> I, all deference little, to she's, her. She's got a little Rita Hayworth soft curl thing going on. I'm just like, ah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. No matter how poorly her wardrobe was treated in the first movie, and some might say the third movie, Heather Langenkamp has never looked better than she does in this movie. Her eyes pop in absolutely every scene and her hair remains one of the greatest manes ever captured on uh film at 24 frames per second. It's spectacular. And when she gets the, the, the gray streak again, it looks even better. <laughs> I think we're, we're coming up to 90s standard production values when it comes to both her hair and makeup and wardrobe. Uh, Brian, what was the first time you saw uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare? Uh, opening weekend. I got to go see it in theaters. Uh, so I was 14. Um, you know, the old uh, you know, mom drops me off, dad picks me up, or vice versa, whatever it was. Um, and uh, it was the, the second of the, the movies I got to see in theaters. I also got to see Freddy's Dead, which was... Not the best experience. Of course, when I was 11, I probably liked it a little more than I did, you know, in later years. Um, right. But, um, you know, and it was funny, too, because the the crowd, uh, um, I'm going to talk about this because I was on before about Jason Goes to Hell. We always had packed crowds for horror stuff there, regardless mm-hmm. of what the film would be, would end up doing on opening weekend the opening crowd there was always jam packed. And so it was always kind of interesting to read the box office and entertainment weekly or USA today, or I'd read it back then um, for the internet, because 
if you were to base it on my screens, it would seem like every horror movie was a, a whopping success, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there were people, I do remember there was a guy dressed as Freddy, like kind of like chasing one of his friends around up and down the aisle <laughs> while we waited, which is, you know, it's, you know, in a muted way and obviously smaller scale, it was basically like what, you know, he'd do at the beginning of Scream 2 with the, the stab premiere with people running around dressed up and stuff. Sure. Um, which always, you know, as soon as I saw Scream 2, I was like, oh, that's basically what, but then, you know, the movie flopped, basically. I mean, it's the lowest grossing entry in the series. And, um, but, you know, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have known it, you wouldn't have known it from the, the crowd at, at, at uh, Showcase Cinema's Lawrence in Massachusetts, for anybody that, uh, your Massachusetts listeners may know that one. Yeah, the lowest rated thing is is interesting, though though not surprising. I mean, I, I'm thinking uh, about how uh, uh, the when Uncut Gems came out, it is it got a very low cinema score because people thought they were going to get a funny Adam Sandler movie, yeah. and and not an Adam Sandler movie where he's having a constant break nervous breakdown from from beginning to end. Um, and I'm sure people went to this and they were like, well, that's not the Freddy we want. And then, you know, they told two friends and they told two friends and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think they, in my memory, they didn't hide the premise. I remember knowing that, like, Wes Craven's in it as himself, you know? Yeah. I mean, him yelling, cut the effects is in every trailer and TV spot ever. So it's always it's always curious to me when people get those those cinema scores. It's like, what movie did you show up for? Did you not watch a trailer or read a synopsis or anything? Like you just you went in totally blind just because of something. I think a lot of people do do that. I, I think people are like, yeah, another Freddy movie. No, that's not the Freddy we want. <laughs> it. I think it's the low information voter syndrome, and. That low information uh, viewer uh, crosses all sorts of genres, and you, we come across it all the time online, where someone decides out of nowhere to declare that you know the last decade was kind of terrible for horror, and you look in amazement, like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> there has not been a, a fertile as a time for horror as the last decade since the 1980s. So I think there's a certain amount of horror fan who only views the type of product they want through one lens. And if it doesn't hit that, then it's somehow a disappointment. It's not what they're looking for. And it's kind of weird in a genre that can do so many things. And in this circumstance, it's this metatextual look at, you know, is making a horror movie a good thing or a bad thing? Is catching evil on screen a net positive, even though there are net minuses? Uh, it's it's an interesting... I know this is very philosophical for Kill by Kill. We're usually making fun of background details, and we will get to that. But uh, the movie is way deeper, but it also has plenty of visceral thrills, and lingering dread the amount that it bounces off the original and the uh franchise in general is pretty astounding like it's a really good companion to the nightmare in elm street series yeah yeah i agree i agree it's uh you know it's it's you know it's, it's, a, it's a thoughtful you know, introspective movie in the series i don't know that any of them any of the other ones were really 
that? I, I think they're unintentionally thoughtful, or at least they're dipping their toes into grander ideas than just another Freddy Krueger movie. And then they eventually just became another Freddy Krueger movie. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But here it is it is having grander aspirations. And there's a lot of things to it that I, I guess would just... It's not the, here's another high schooler who's dealing with a dream demon, <laughs> you know, as we all do uh, in our high school years. Here is a working actress who's reaching a plateau in her career. She's, you know, got a house in Tarzana with fruit painted in her kitchen. Okay, fine. <laughs> you her, know, she, uh, her, her, her son unfortunately suffers from this same tragic affliction as the little boy in the Babadook, which is, uh, I believe the scientific term is screaming creepy childitis. <laughs> I mean, can we talk about Miko Hughes for a second? He is obviously iconic from Pet Cemetery, but here he's grown a couple of years, but the, and I really don't want to focus on people's bodies because it's weird. It's something they can't control. But he, his body proportions here are astounding. People talk about needing to be a lollipop head in this business. His head is about three quarters of his torso. Oh, he's a pop doll. He's a human he, pop doll. It's crazy. His he's proportions. A tiny, he's a tiny little delicate boy. And, and I just wanted to protect him so much. <laughs> and his little jammies. And he's probably like 12 when he made this movie. Oh, and God only knows. And he's just like toddling across the highway in his little jammies. I'm like, no, you, you're not supposed to be on the highway again. <laughs> uh, I, this, I, I think this it puts time, it, the truck misses. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it weirdly puts it into, uh, again, this sort of meta circumstance where. Um, I feel the same way about this movie that I, I do about the first and second child's play where you have a kid who's so tiny, who's just a, who's really a child on screen. And he doesn't seem to be an adult in a child's body. He doesn't have that sort of Jerry Maguire syndrome, which weirdly enough came out around the same time. I think I saw it in the same theater as that, where it feels like, a lot of adult is being put into this kid. He just seems like a kid. This movie is a cavalcade of terrible looking nineties phone tech. <laughs> the bricks people hold in their hands, the desktop phones just seem gargantuan, like the size of my laptop. It's crazy how big people's phone tech is in this movie. And no one, and no one has like. There's no major cell problems though either. Like they have cell phones and they just use them, even though it's '94 and that was a relatively new thing. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's like it's like it's it's a rare horror movie that never has the cell phone problem, even though back then it probably would have. Yes. Well, I think it's such a crazy um, uh, psychological and. Uh, supernatural sphere it's not like you can call the cops like hey the idea of freddy krueger is haunting my house and my child please uh dispatch someone yeah so it's not like you know phoning someone is going to make it better for you uh the other thing this movie has in droves is creepy limo drivers and yeah (laughs) i love a good creepy limo driver especially in an la movie 
I, there's nothing I love more, and I mean, my favorite use of it is in this a Spinal Tap, when the when the driver is just babbling away to the person, and the person just kind of puts that little window up. That's yeah. like I just love that so much. I don't want to burst their bubble, but this rock and roll thing is just not going to last. <laughs> when you've loved and lost like Frank has. <laughs> <laughs> you've loved and lost like Frank has. <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, please forgive me while I laugh for five minutes at the very idea of this spinal tap. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, the size of the fake plants on this uh, TV set show <laughs> that they're doing with uh, KTLA's Sam Sam. What the fuck is his name? Uh, he's not on TV anymore. I don't think. <laughs> But this was the height of his powers, and they seem oh the to guy project- interviewing her yeah oh oh he was he's a it was he was a he's a guy playing himself like a real yeah he, oh, okay. yeah he was the entertainment reporter on KTLA for oh, okay ever before my time until, in LA yeah until like a biscuit ago was that like a weird thing at New Line at the time because Jason goes to hell had the those other LA guys the the DJs you know I think that there is a an advantage and a disadvantage to how closed the loop new line cinema was. We talked about this a bit with Freddie's dead. Uh, and weirdly enough, hearkening back to the last time you were on the show with Jason goes to hell. Both movies have a sequence in which you go around a serial killer's brain. So somewhere at new line, they were really into this idea of like, we're going to go inside the brain of Freddy Krueger. Oh, no, but we're going to go inside the brain of Jason Voorhees. It's like, I don't know that that's all that wacky, crazy, cool an idea, but okay. And I think because it was a truly independent at the time sort of thing, there was a closed loop system. If they had an idea in their head of like, well, the best way to refract uh, what society is thinking is a talk show. They just keep pushing that idea, regardless of what the property is. And, you know, that's what we get to see. <laughs> and during it, it, what the weirdest thing is to me is that Freddie goes, you're all my children now, which is from part two, Freddie's Revenge. Yeah. So that's either an acknowledgement of Freddy's revenge or a dig at Freddy's revenge. And I'm not particularly sure which one it is. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, I remember Wes saying, you know, obviously he didn't rush out and see any of the sequels and then he tried to, you know, he, he watched them only when he got this gig. So I'm like, I wonder if there was ever a point where they were like, you know, throw in more references to, Leo's and he was just like, yeah, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be doing that at all. Thank you. <laughs> but I do, I do. There's one thing I love. I absolutely love. I don't know what it's if it's supposed to be a meta joke. If it is, it's possibly the best one of all time. Uh, is that Tuesday night is at the is at the funeral, <laughs> and Tuesday night was, you know, um, what's her name, Patricia Arquette's replacement. So uh, Rod's there too. So it's like, okay, Patricia Arquette probably became friendly with Heather Langenkamp and may show up to uh, her husband's funeral to show her respects. Why would Tuesday night do that? Unless Tuesday night is actually playing Patricia Arquette in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Which if, oh. if that was the intent, it is, the, it is genius. And I applaud 
the, the thinking behind that. I'm all for that uh, intention very much so. I mean, the Hollywood-esque, I think it's a weird time. I can't remember exactly when um, The Player came out, if it was before. It was 92. 92. So it is before this. So there is a lot of the player-ness happening in this as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's no need for Sarah Risher to play herself. Like, who is, you know, I mean, we might know Bob Shea at that point. Obviously, Wes and and the the actors. But, you know, you have Sarah Risher and one of the other New Line execs playing themselves. And it's just like, do we really need, like, they could have just gotten a real actress to show up. There's no one in the crowd that's going to be like, you know. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. And and I'm sure there are people that are probably like, oh, that's funny. The guy that that showed up in three of the other movies is showing up again. Now he's playing this the head of the movie studio. They don't read credits and they don't pay attention enough to know that what his name is and who he is. They just might recognize him as the leather bar, you know, bartender from two, you know. Or the ticket taker and and Freddy's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The teacher in part four. Um, yeah, I, th- again, this is the best, uh, that Bob Shang has ever been in any Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which is saying something. Cause I think he's, he's in at least, uh, it, from a voice standpoint, each and every single one of them. He's yeah. He's very, but he's very much a, uh, Hey Booby, how you doing? Kind of, you know, kind of mode here. But he's also the most Neil Breen he's ever been. He does, in look, this like, movie. He does look like Neil Breen, doesn't he? It's crazy how he much he looks funeral, like Neil right? Breen. And I was like, I looked for like, Neil Breen. <laughs> I mean, if he wore a, a denim jacket and started killing people with mind powers and, and threw a laptop and said, no more books, I would believe it. <laughs> I would believe it if he started eating out of tuna cans. And making and hacking the world from the the four laptops in the trunk of his car. <laughs> God, I love Neil Brain. He's the best. Fucking Neil Brain. Give it up. Um, <laughs> I mean, the these these are the old. I think this was on. I think the old New Line was on Robertson before they got folded into the Warner Brothers uh, fold, and uh, it was a crazy concrete building. But I mean, this is. It's such a weird flashback to a time. And yet there are so many things about it that are ring absolutely true. Like as soon as you walk into an office, someone behind a desk, you said, I'm here to see you. And the person says, were they expecting you? No, I I drove all the way fucking across town to Robertson (laughs) because I thought Bob Shea might want to see me. What the fuck are you doing? What are you talking about? Why did I show up here? I came from Tarzana, damn it. You think I'd drive down all the way up four or five over there here to get... Yeah, there's no fucking way that I drove all the way across to the west side for this shit unless I have a meeting. Unless I'm coming here. It's not like Warner Brothers where I can just cross a freeway and I can go to Bob's Big Boy if I strike out. No, 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 no. Like, this is a fucking haul. Uh, that is LA Talk here on <laughs> Kill by Kill podcast. I'm just like, I'm just sitting here like, I'm taking you guys' word for it. <laughs> I love every back lot scene in a movie. The jugglers, they, I was like, yep, there they are. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the people with the costumes, the, the big dolly of, what are you, not dolly, but the big, uh, the, the movable rack of costumes, they're all, yes. 
Yeah, it's like it's yeah, you got that bingo card, that backlot bingo card where it's like somebody dressed like a Civil War soldier uniform. Yeah, Talk just, just everything is there. There's yeah. a great part in that in that backlot scene too. You know, uh, you know, she's with Robert. She's waiting for him. She's like, Robert, we got to go. Then he instantly like walks the opposite direction. You know, after they talk for about five seconds, but. I don't know if I, I don't know if I never noticed him before because I just revisited the movie. It's probably the first time I watched it on Blu-ray. Um, you could Robert committed, man. You see him walk all the way, <laughs> like at least a good hundred yards. Like he's still <laughs> walking back there. I'm like, do they like they didn't just tell Robert he could just like take a left or something so the poor guy could sit down? <laughs> like, no. what was Robert thinking while he just endlessly walked down this long, long, you know, alley between the two uh, studio buildings? Um, yeah, everything about this has a ring of truth to it. Uh, and I think that uh, the verisimilitude of it all imbues the movie with a realness and a reality to it that when things start to break down and they go crazy and they eventually do, it it feels right. It, it doesn't feel like it's an add-on. It's not a layer onto something else. It really feels like, hey, the earth started rumbling. Reality started cracking. People are going insane. Am I going insane or insane things happening to me? And that's what this movie does really well. It's, it is Wes Craven really working on all cylinders. One thing and, I noticed, I didn't, you know, obviously, again, I saw this when I was 14, so I didn't, some of it's, some of it went over my head, but I noticed probably in college or whenever I revisited, um, that, uh, you know, the only people that die in the movie are the people that are not playing themselves. Right. You know, they only kill off fictional people. And anybody that's anybody that's actually playing themselves in the movie is left alive, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know if that was an intent um, or if that was, you know, one of his ideas, you know, the, the, you know these things can't really harm the real people or something. Are we supposed to, I, I don't know if this was a dropped plot thread or... What are we supposed to assume happened to Robert England? Yeah, that and the and the John Saxon thing, they kind of they don't really make sense. I don't understand why Saxon all of a sudden becomes Thompson again. Yeah, out of nowhere because it doesn't really follow up with it. He just you know he starts calling her Nancy. He's, he's dressed as Thompson. He just leaves. Uh, but and then England, yeah, England is like oh, I won't be. Uh, I won't be. In he's town. clearly you know dealing with this too. Are we supposed to? Is he kind of turning into Freddy? Because I, I do wonder if he's. I, I mean, there are there are multiple interpretations you can take to it. He is either transforming against his will into Freddy, and the the end of this movie is an exorcism, as it were, of that because he can't help it. Just the same way John Saxon can't help be, becoming Nancy's dad, which is. Man, as soon as John fucking Saxon enters this movie, it also k- kicks into another level. This is a great John Saxon role. Just being John Saxon, telling Sonny Bono stories. <laughs> if there's anyone who's going to tell an entertaining Sonny Bono story, it's John Saxon. <laughs> um, I do wonder that. It's either to clear uh, him off the table uh, or to set up, well, is it still, you know, is he turning into Freddy Krueger? The last we see him, he's painting and can't finish a conversation. 
which seems like the most Robert England thing in the entire world. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I'm painting right now. I can't have this phone conversation. And if you and if you've ever interviewed or know Robert, you know that there's nothing more unsettling than a Robert England who is unable to speak. Uh, <laughs> adds a, it adds I, a layer, layer of creepiness to it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's certainly it's an interesting, and it is a kind of a creepy, unsettling. It just doesn't. There's no follow through on it, and it's not you know, explain, but I think, you know, that is something that I don't know if plagued is the right word, but throughout Wes's career, the films that he wrote himself, there are always things that don't quite make sense. They're just a little too brainy to translate to the screen, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, when you're dealing with this has to be, you know, in this, in this particular film's case and expectations of, for better or worse, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 7. You know, there might not be time to slow down and explain these things thoroughly. Um, I chalk that up to him being a psychology and philosophy major. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I, I always wished that he had had a, a, a writing partner, you know, a, a, that would, you, you know, you'd see their name alongside his more often than not. Uh, and the writing credits because I think he always had a lot of great ideas that weren't fully coming across and this is definitely one of those cases where I'm sure there is a very cool very logical explanation for those things it's just not there and I don't think it was edited out or something I think it's just not you know it's just not something that makes sense on screen it's probably just a little too cerebral to, to really come across, you know, and it's not necessarily the story he's focusing on telling. I, no, I that's the thing. It's it's a subplot at best. It's yeah. it's a strange that's left dangling. I mean, the, the movie is start to finish from from Heather's point of view. So I remember somebody was like, "I'm really mad. I just wanted to see a scene where, where Freddie was attacking Robert England." I'm like, "Okay, first of all, the effects in this movie suck. So the, the fact that you'd want to see that is just its own thing." But, you know, it's like, that would be corny, you know, like it's, it wouldn't fit. I don't think in any way, um, you know, they don't even show you the, the other two, uh, effects guys, you know, we just find out they're dead on a news report and that's that, uh, you know, this movie is not about showing kills and it's not about everybody, you know, there's a little bit to hint that Heather's not the only target, but it still is very much Heather's movie from start to finish you know we like, yeah bob doesn't want to answer his phone and you know uh sarah risher i think i forget if i might be remembering stuff from the novelization too which i read and i don't have anymore i was trying to find it i don't know what happened to it but uh i think there was stuff with her with sarah risher's character that you know she wasn't sleeping well or something i don't remember if it was in the movie yeah, I mean, the other thing that's not in the movie that I that I remember hearing was a major component of it that eventually just got erased was the idea of Julie being the actual stalker uh, okay. of of Nancy. Oh, so the one sending her the letters before all yes. this stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's and another. Yeah, that's another subplot. I never really. It, it it doesn't come, and it's okay that it doesn't. It, it just there's this concentric circle, this spiral that's going around Heather, right? Did and they catch her stalker in real life? That's a really good question that I don't have the answer to. I really don't, and I wouldn't pretend to. Um, and we're talking about a time 
where it wasn't taken anywhere close to as serious as it is now. And I can't say it's taken all that serious currently, uh, considering how many people I hear about with such problems. And we've even run into it here, just a skosh, just uh, just a blip of it. <laughs> now, it's interesting. Okay. I've had the three most prominent stalker act, you know, actresses have been stalked. They've had a problem with that sort of thing. I've had all of them in the past year or so uh, at screenings. And every time I'm always just like, I can't believe they actually come out and do these things, which is awesome yeah. because we don't screen every person that comes in. You know, we don't know if, if one of these people in the crowd is one of the, you know, the people that have had a problem with in the past, but her, uh, Danielle Harris and um, Adrian King, have all had, you know, issues with that and, you know, it, it has affected how much they work and how much they do and stuff. So, um, and it's just interesting to, like I said, this is all pre-internet and I, and I, and I would love to see something like this, you know, in, in terms of, you know, how fandom has changed and, you know, let's say largely for the worse <laughs> thanks to the internet and, and because now you have enablers and, 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 you know, stalkers very rarely despite work on their own. They're no longer just, you know, skulking around sending letters to people's houses. Now they're, you know, getting their little, you know, teams online to just kind of harass and wear down people. And it's, you know, it's funny to watch, you know, it was kind of a little bit, uh, um, what's sort of thinking of when you, uh, you know, you, you see something coming, um, you know, with how, you know, the fans, you know, keep thinking of her like her character and and the whole thing with you know how you know the people are treating freddie like a rock star and and just you know and how weird that is and and you know it's only gotten weirder yeah people have only been more encouraged to um indulge their standom as it were um there's a distance to being online and saying what you want to say uh, as opposed to in person. Uh, and it's never been easier to talk to somebody and it's never been more difficult to connect. Uh, it's, it. I do wish that, I, and it feels like something that the Scream franchise could um, capitalize on. But once again, I think the Scream franchise is left with a chasm that's going to be very difficult for it to leap over and that is the disappearance of one Wes Craven uh, I mean again I didn't want this to be a multi-episode blowjob of the genius of Wes Craven but we at least have to acknowledge it and, and both of you have touched on it the man was brimming with ideas and an amazing capacity for empathy for dialing into what unnerves us and finding a way to translate that and when he was at the top of his game and he, the top of his game, you know, didn't have one white hot center. It came back and came back and came back. Uh, I don't know how the Scream franchise would re-enter the fray without him in the director's chair, to be honest with you. It's a very interesting problem, but one I don't have an answer to. I just don't know where the next Wes Craven is coming from. Uh, there are certainly lots of talented people uh, who could make a great horror movie. I don't know that we have a lot of Wes Cravens running around, and I don't know how we possibly could. 
Well, I think you're going to, I think that we do, but they're going to be kind of sticking to, to the, uh, the indie horror. I, I don't think you're going to, you know, have the kind of, you know, pull that he has. Cause most of his movies did pretty well, um, uh, in the, in the, in the box office. And the ones that didn't kind of garnered a cult following, like there's, you know, we, when you mentioned like the serpent and the rainbow, everybody's like, oh shit, you know, <laughs> like like that's just a movie you see it once, you do not forget it, and and you know, I, I think like uh, like the other night I I watched the movie Bliss, which is direct, written and directed by Joe uh, Bagos, and he seems to have you know all of his movies, they are all very gory, but they all seem to you know have like a different you know, kind of look and feel to them. He's using different genres, like Bliss was a vampire movie. VFW, which he did almost back-to-back with Bliss, is like a, a kind of like a... um, you, The siege sort of, picture. Yeah, like an assault on Precinct 13, only it's a bunch of old, grizzled old war veterans, um, which is kind of more... It was kind of more of a comedy horror, whereas Bliss was not funny in the slightest. And and the, you, you can see that similar style, but he seems like someone who wants to try something a little different. But his movies are not yet getting widespread release. I I mean I think it's weirdly a, 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 a it's a tough time because there are good horror movies that are getting wide releases, uh, and there's still trash. There's always trash. There was trash in the eighties. There was trash in the fifties. There's there's always trash, man. Like everyone comes up to the plate and they take a swing and sometimes they're swinging to fur home runs and sometimes they hit base singles. Um, and sometimes they're just outright flops with everyone intending to do the best they possibly can. Uh, but we're also in a time where, you know, it chapter two, it, it, both those movies were huge, giant releases you know, Crawl is a creature feature, but it was released in the summer. Like, Paramount didn't hide the fact that Crawl was in theaters. This is a time where a studio can make a stand with a horror movie that's, you know, they feel they've, you know, they're going to make some hay with. A24 does it all the time. Yeah, but A24 so, is trying some weird shit. And, yes. and you know, it's it's they're not going for conventional horror. And that's why you get a lot of people saying that, you know, because when they, when, when, when people are, are who claim that, Oh, is a bad year of horror or a bad decade for horror. We know what they're talking about. They're talking about the witch. They're talking about hereditary. They're talking about midsummer, the movies that, you know, most, you know, instigated the whole, well, this isn't really horror conversation. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that they're doing. And you have a lot of, very yeah, you know, particularly I hate to say people our age who just are very much digging in and having very distinct idea of what horror is, and that's someone chasing a bunch of people around the woods with a knife. And and yeah, every once in a while you've got movies that are still coming out like that, but lo and behold, they're not very good. And you know, I mean they they you know, some of them choose like I liked I liked Ready or Not. That was a lot of fun. But yeah. but I still think that was they were still trying something a little different with that. Yeah, I just, I don't know who, you know, and I hope I'm surprised, to be honest with you. I enjoy the surprise of it, of, of thinking I might know what Ready or Not is and being surprised. I love the fact that I walked into Crawl thinking, this could be fun, and having a shit ton of fun in it. 
And this is, it's a really fun and interesting time where there are all sorts of cool shit happening. And I feel like New Nightmare is really in there with a big idea and still delivering all sorts of things. Gore, dread, it's heavy in dread. Oh, yeah. That whole W. Earl Brown sequence. And has he ever looked more clean cut than he does in this movie? I was like, why do I know that that voice? And, yeah, and, then, and like, it's and oh, it's, and it's uh, and, and what I like about it is it, it's self aware. I mean, it, it obviously is self aware, but it's not in a, in a smug, winking sort of way at the audience. You know, the problem with a lot of you know, horror that tries to, you know, you know, exist within its own universe is it feels like they're saying to the audience, yeah, we know this is garbage. You know what I yeah. mean? And, and, you know, we're just going to have some fun with it. We're not trying to take this serious as an actual good movie or anything. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> you know, but I think this one is, you know, you, you're in the world of this movie being made. It's unfolding in front of you, but we are taking this seriously. And and I think that that is a difficult, you you know, balance to maintain and, and they do it well. Yes. Uh, the there are so many details about this movie that I absolutely love. There's that one sequence in which you slowly push into the bedroom and everything in Heather's uh, bedroom is rocking like it's all on water. And it's very subtle. Like, I didn't notice it until this time watching the movie. I'm like, no, he's really trying to communicate the fact that she is unmoored that she is alone. She is set adrift. She cannot communicate the circumstances that she has found herself in this life. And you can only understand it through her eyes. And yet there's also a sequence in this where we look at her living room and there's a fucking wood leopard in there. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening there? (laughs) Who has a house like this? This is crazy. Why would you have that in the living room? When we go, when we go to the two other stars, when we go to Wes Craven's house, like I, that feels like some sort of dream empire <laughs> because it doesn't seem real up until the point you go into his office and you see it's just cluttered with fucking books and crazy shit all over the walls. You're like, ah, no, 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 that's Wes Craven. That's the professor. Yeah, how often the did guy Wes sitting use on, a, on a couch in front of a long swimming pool? Yeah. I don't know who that is. <laughs> That's someone else. That's Wes Craven going, here's who you think I am. Up until the point in which I reveal that all of our dialogue I've scripted. Like, oh, that's that's some fucking Wes Craven shit right there. Yeah, this is the guy that was like facing homelessness when, uh, you know, when when the first nightmare uh, was, you know, before before it went into production. Yeah. And it was interesting. I, I. it's only 10 years from, from the original nightmare to this one. And yet it, it feels more like a movie that almost could have came now, or at least, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, as opposed to within, I think three years of the last sequel at that point, like it feels like a weird homecoming and it's, it's time to bring this, the band back together and stuff. It's like, it's only been a few years, guys. I mean, the, 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 the 10 year span, this series uh, from from the original Nightmare to, to New Nightmare is, uh, as of April, just as long as it's been since we've had a Nightmare movie at all. And that was the remake. 
Yeah. <laughs> Regrettably. Which is <laughs> its own can of fish. Yeah. Um, smelly, I, smelly fish. <laughs> I haven't even seen it. I, I have not even seen it, but I'm just dreading it in every possible way. Because every, everybody, because every, I'll tell you, I've had this conversation at least with at least three different people. You guys going to do the remake? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. I mean, every movie, every other Platinum Dunes, you know, the Chainsaw, Friday, uh, Amityville, they have, you know, they're polarizing. You know, they're people that really dig what they do and they're people that hate them. I, have, I don't think I've ever spoken to anybody that's been a diehard champion of the Nightmare remake. I don't know if they exist. I'm sure there are some people who liked it, but I have never had that conversation the way I can have it with their other movies. Hell, even Hitcher, I can find. I, I'm, I'm a, I liked their Hitcher. I can find other Hitcher fans. I can certainly find others that hate it. I cannot recall in 10 years now having a conversation with somebody that could defend and had a lot of warm thoughts for their their nightmare remake it's such a um unlike all the others even though that uh well i feel like the the uh the texas chainsaw was such a success in not only financially but it's just a on its own merits it just for whatever reason just kind of works does it work as well as, as the original of course not how could it that's lightning in a bottle. You can't reproduce that. You can only create your own thing out of those elements. And I think it it does it with some aplomb. It's not life-changing, but I think it's a good swing at the back. Friday has its moments. <laughs> I don't like how Austin it feels. I don't like that it's four movies in one. <laughs> I don't like that Jason has a subterranean basement made of concrete. Uh, I don't like that he has a jacket, but he's a great Jason. Like, that's a great Jason. <laughs> There's plenty of good things about it that that float its boat. But man, Nightmare. Um, haven't seen it since the theater, and I am dreading it. Just dreading it. I hope in, I my my best my best hope is that it does not drain us of the will to live like 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 <laughs> like Jason X did. Jason X. And not to revisit this, but could not have found us at a lower point. And <laughs> I went into that with general, genuine good feelings about it. Like, hey, I like the costumes. I think it's fun. It's breezy. And then it just dragged us, just dragged us into Canadian sci-fi hell. Well, I think that the problem is when you do break them down like we do, then then a lot of them don't hold up. And and. And that's why, you know, what I was saying about the the whole, you know, he's writing the script as it happens. You know, it, it, you, you can't think about it too long because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but it's it's such a clever idea on its own that, that it's still enjoyable. Yeah. The fact that they're all his puppets and that he's responsible for the tragedies that are all befalling all these people that have agreed to work with him. <laughs> And he's just like, you know, it's just, it's just slightly, you know, like, oh, Wes, kind of ending, you know? <laughs> I just want, I want like a post-credit or, you know, something seen of either him or, or the mail courier waiting 
by by Nancy's uh, by Heather's house at the end of the film to deliver the script. You're like, all right, just make sure. Yeah, she should be fighting Freddy in this other realm now. Uh, she'll climb out of the bed soon. We wanted to find the script right then, so uh, have it ready. Thanks. Okay, bye. I thought it'd be. I wanted it to be like. Um... God, I'm really dating myself here, but certain certain TV shows, I think I want to say the ones produced by Stephen J. Cannell in the 80s, like mm-hmm. it would end with him, a picture of him at his typewriter. And like he would pull the paper out and just go flying and then spell out his name. <laughs> I just thought that was going to happen with like, you know, Wes Craven, like right at the end credits. <laughs> or, or a post script scene, a post credit scene with Bob Shea reading the script and being like, "The fuck is this? No, where, where, where are the kills? How did you kill two people in this? No, thrown across the room. Go with Freddy versus Jason. You want to run a kid across a fucking highway? Do you know how much that's going to cost? How are you going to do that? Diane, get me Wes Craven. <laughs> Oh yeah, Wes, you're a special effects genius. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw two mil behind this rear projection gag. That's gonna work out great for everyone. Where are you gonna shut down a fucking freeway? Let's just talk about that rear projection gag. It is it's still fucking there are certain effects in here. Some of the model work towards the end is a little janky, but for God love it. I love rear projection gags. Here, Terminator. Aliens. Dream Warriors. <laughs> Dream Warriors. Uh, skeleton. Yeah. Uh, rear projection shit just works for me. It feels, listen, it doesn't look real, but it looks like a movie. And maybe that's my generational gap talking, but it feels real to me than something that is entirely digital. And here it just works like fucking gangbusters. I, I love everything about that sequence and it should be noted this is some of the best music in any of the nightmare on elm street films it is just as histrionic as it tends to get at times yeah there is something to having a full fucking orchestra give you a real score to one of these movies already yeah there's a christopher youngish quality to some of it yeah and we don't have like you know an iggy pop you know, B side or, you know, some, you know, you know, mediocre, you know, hair metal band doing a, a, you know, a song. Yeah. They're, yeah. The fat boys aren't making a guest spot. <laughs> um, as much as I enjoy the Houdini song from part five, it has fuck all to do with Nightmare Elm Street. Uh, I just, I just like the funky drummer beat. Um, but yeah, it doesn't have, it's not, uh, talking down to the kids as it were. This feels like an adult nightmare in Elm Street movie. I'm sure that's how he sold it. Like there's a whole, it's been a decade since that first film. All those kids are now kind of grown up. They've maybe they've gone into college. Maybe they're, they're into the workforce, you know, wherever they were when they first saw that movie. Now they're kind of adults. Why not have an adult fear of now this is affecting my child. What does it mean to lose a spouse? You know, yeah, these you're, are fears good, that you have as an adult. That's a good point. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, you know, a whole different level of fear. It's actually, I thought of, along those same lines, the new grudge, which also has, I forgot Lynn Shea was in, in the nightmare. She's one of the nurses. Yeah. Um, does that also had that same thing where it was like, okay, this movie you know, the first, the, the Sarah Michelle Gellar grudge came out when I was 24. Now I'm almost 40. 
and this movie feels like something aimed at 40 year olds as opposed to the 24 year olds now you know or younger even uh, of course now yes. it, it means the reviews are terrible because everybody's bored because <laughs> they don't go to a grudge movie for adult themes and, so, and whatnot um but you know it's, it's always an interesting approach to take for a sequel um which this isn't technically but you know, for lack of sake of argument um is you it's know, at least a rule you aiming at are you aiming ideas. at the people the age group that made the other ones a hit or are you aiming at those people again you know mm-hmm. um and it, it's interesting because this is a film that stands on its own it is not part seven it's it's a different universe it's it's you know it's closer to halloween three than you know uh anything else um it does not require any pre-knowledge of the nightmare on elm street series in fact it might even work better the less you know about them because those expectations wouldn't be there you wouldn't think oh this doesn't have as many kills as the others if you're if it's the first one you've seen, you know, um, obviously some of the little references and jokes screw your pass and, and uh, the babysitter being killed the same way that Tina was and stuff, you know, that that would obviously fly over your head. But I would be curious to see, to talk to somebody who saw this one first, you know, yes. with, with only a basic kind of general awareness of the other films. Yeah, I would, I would, I'd be interested to see in how they viewed it, uh, without those references to anchor them, whether or not they latched onto the very idea of it, without knowing who all these people are in relation to one another. Because it's not, it's not a fan servicey movie, you know. It's not like they are doing callbacks, and you know, I mean, even when, even when they do, they don't. I mean, they have, um. I can't pronounce his name, J.S.U. Jesu, just Garcia at the funeral, but he doesn't even get a line of dialogue, you know? No. Um, and He's not even sweaty. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like he's just there. It's just like, so if you haven't seen the movie, you're just like, all right, there's a close-up of this random guy. It must be one of her friends. Okay, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like the movie stops cold to have him wave and, and take his little victory lap of coming back, you know? Uh you mentioned you mentioned Lynn Shay playing the nurse. One thing I, I thought was a certain an amusing aspect of this was how, you know, all of the medical staff cannot wait for the opportunity to drug this child. <laughs> <laughs> they are like gleeful at the idea. I mean, she's shaking this pill cup at him like it's filled with Pez. <laughs> we gotta get this kid drugged and fast. I do love uh, the line though from the babysitter. She's like. I know it's in that one. Do you have any idea it's in this one? It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's like the one nurse is already like tricking him and, you know, you know injecting him. And it kind of like gets this like little smug triumphant smile. And I mean, and they're kind of terrible at their job too because Heather shows up and she's like, how's Dylan? She's like, all right, he's right. He's in a coma, but <laughs> he's like, in the oxygen tent. child is is grown but i mean but you you guys kids are still young i mean can you imagine walking into the hospital and then they tell you oh by the way he had an episode <laughs> late earlier he's fine he's just under an oxygen tent <laughs> now it's cool everything's fine we drugged him to the point in which he's unconscious <laughs> we don't want you to worry he's he looks so tired <laughs> 
again, and they, also they leave like they're witnessing this this lady being butchered, and three you know, two nurses and, and three and an orderly or whatever. Yeah, there's one guy, two women. They all just run away. None of them like grab the kid out of there. You know, it's oh, like, no. sorry, like, I'm sorry, not kid with all probably man. Get out of here. Point. You have to fend for yourself. <laughs> Listen, now, I'm not paid enough to take on invisible men. <laughs> is that happening psychically? I don't know. I don't want to get involved. My name's Paul. This is between y'all. <laughs> and also, I you also know, one love, of the, at least one of those people I've seen never in Elm Street, none of them were like, oh, well, that's the same thing that happened to that Tina chick. And that lady, <laughs> like, this is odd. This is an odd, you know, occurrence here. Now it sort of overlaps. It's sort of meta. Anyone? Oh, everyone ran away. Okay. Maybe I should run away too. I also love how um, nurses get punched. <laughs> women be punching women in this movie. And I kind of like it. The same woman gets knocked out uh, by uh, the the nanny. And then Heather elbows the fuck out of her. And I love that part. <laughs> now, that is what Wes was warming up for with for Scream. Because that has yes. the, you know, the classic, uh, I'll send you a copy. <laughs> Some real lady-on-lady lady violence is what we're looking for in the Wes Craven milieu. <laughs> I, bet that, I mean, that the, the, the head nurse, uh, that's probably... It's probably the the only real joke in the whole movie, and, and no one gets it. She's named after the the lady, the guy that was running the MPAA, uh, uh, Hefner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Wes uh, you know, had his certainly had his problems with the, with the MPAA over the years, so he named the the evil. Well, not evil, but you know, very, very. Uh, what's the word? Kind of a bitch, she's, uh, you know. Uh, nurse. Which is very judgmental uh, about you know, what, after what Heather does for a Because, you know, the first thing she yeah. does is like, oh, you're the lady from that horror movie. You show your kid this stuff, this, this vile nonsense, you know. They're like, all right, this is, this is Wes having a little fun at, at that guy's expense. But I also feel like he's he's displaying something that he's run across. Like, even, like, I met, uh, you know, weirdly enough um when my kid was going to preschool uh one of his children had a kid who was also going to a neighboring preschool and we would do the two preschools would do things together they were both co-ops so uh i met him and uh I, you know people would ask him about his dad through almost leaning back like the west craven in him was catching it's such a odd thing I I don't think we we view it as much uh, amongst the sort of you know the horrorati of Los Angeles, but to the outsiders, to people who only tangentially meet these people on occasion, when they hear that you're into horror movies, there's that sort of oh why why would you ever? And that's something he kind of projects here. Like this follows Heather. Like she's not free of it. It may have gotten her a house. It may have gotten her TV gigs. It may have gotten her a somewhat easy living life, at least from the outside. But she's when she walks into a hospital and she just wants to know if her kid is okay, there's a doctor judging the fuck out of how she makes a living because of it. And that's very much baked into this cake. Um, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting 
uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch that, but I don't work in the entertainment industry, so I, I might not have, but that's a, that, that's, you know, you, you, another layer. I like that. This movie is layers on layers, man. It just is. Um, and not, and would... not in a Shrek way where, where, you know, it's an onion <laughs> and the more you peel, the more it stinks. <laughs> it isn't like Shrek. And that is important to know. When you that, put that on the, the put that on the pool put that as a pool quote uh, for, for the uh, for the uh, put it on the four K Blu Ray box. Yes, it isn't like Shrek. Gina this Radcliffe, is, this, oh my it ain't no Shrek. <laughs> this is Gina Radcliffe of the spool. <laughs> very, very true. Um, I would be remiss if we didn't at least break uh, bring up what happens in the third act. It's very. The fact that it starts in a dream, which is on the movie set, which the third act takes place in, is it's all this circular logic of it that I find utterly fascinating. And yet they even take time to have Freddy do a very typical Freddy, you know, pick out one of these eels, bitch. And she Gag. jams and you know a snake she, in his eye. She jams an eel in the motherfucker's eye. That's that is fantastic. And the fact that Freddie gets stabbed in the dick. I had forgotten that Freddie got stabbed in the dick. And he, and he also gets that movie. that tongue splitting thing that the that the, that the goth kids do. Yeah, it's very very true. Uh, it's way ahead of its time. That I I just. I somehow I just forgotten that the culmination all of this is it's like die hard stab Freddy in the dick shove him in an oven and run because this entire hell dimension is gonna blow up and then it does and then they just poltergeist out of it into her kitchen into her very shabby chic kitchen and they start reading a script it's just it's wild um, I dig this movie. Uh, any final th- anything that we missed that you want to talk about? We we reached that stage. I don't think so. I mean, I, I consider it. You know, again, it's it's not really a sequel. One thing I do love about uh, the way that it's presented is that you know the, the full title truly is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. It's not. It's not like the John Carpenter's the thing, John Carpenter's Halloween, you know, whatever. It, mm-hmm. The Wes Craven part of it is given the same weight of uh, 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 font, you know, in the title. It's all one line, a straight line across Wes Craven. When Wes talked about it, he would, he didn't call it New Nightmare, he called it Wes Craven's New Nightmare. It is very much part of the title, um, which I thought was always very interesting uh, because inevitably and i myself have done this you you, you refer you know it's the seventh nightmare on street movie Freddy yeah. versus jason was the eighth nightmare on street movie you know uh they it's not really it's just, what else are you gonna call it you know um so because of that and you know we do these ranks i, I always put it just you know three and one of my favorites and then this one's next um and, you know, part of that is, I, I might have mentioned this in the, in the movie that Jason Goes to Hell, I was always more of a Jason and Freddy, I mean, Jason and Michael guy uh, than Freddy. I never got into Freddy as much as the, the, the other two. 
so I think I tend to like the ones more like this and also, you know, phrase revenge where it's going outside the box yeah. as opposed to, you know, dream master, which is probably the most, is certainly most successful um, of the original series. And, and it remains enough, a featuring another me, invisible it's, it's man. Just fight. kind of boring, <laughs> you know, it's it, because it's, exactly what you think a Freddy movie is. It's got probably yeah. the most kills or at least tied for most kills. Um, it's, it's, it's very slick. It's got all the one-liners. It's got the imaginative dream sequences. You know, it, it's not, it's not a bad movie at all, but it's just, it just doesn't interest me because it's, it's, it's just MTV, you know, Freddy as the rock, God, you know, is the peak of that kind of thing. Um, and I, I liked that this one was had ideas. You know, what I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. Wes Craven didn't come back because oh, I have a cool idea for a kill, or you know, I, I thought of some great Freddy quips. Uh, I'd like to be the one to to write and direct them myself. You know, um, he he had ideas and he was using the the mythology of Freddy to get them across. Yeah, which I thought was a fascinating approach for any franchise movie, let alone one that had supposedly ended. And there were certainly going to be fans who were, yes, he's not really dead. Like, no, he is. Uh, like, <laughs> it's not the same thing. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder if Freddy should not have been played by Robert England. I wonder if like the idea might have come across better. Because you you know they they, they changed the makeup a lot. In fact, he, sure, they changed the makeup, but he makeup. looked bigger. Like if you had, if you had told me that 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 wasn't Robert Englund doing the the you know the actual physical work, I would have believed you, because he looked like just beefier. Yeah, well, they, I mean, they they, they dramatic. I mean, the makeup always kind of changed a little bit from movie to movie depending on who was doing it. But this is the the first time I felt like they were specifically going for a completely different look as opposed to I'm going to, you know, put my own touches on this basic design. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? The color, you know, this hat is even a different color and he's got the trench coat and the glove looks different. You know what I mean? So, um, I can't help but wonder if maybe because it's about the idea of Freddie that if they should have modified it more, even to the extent where it was a different actor playing him, that that might have worked a little better because then you can't do a trailer where Robert England and Freddie make up saying miss me because that is, yeah, we did. And we're here for Elm street seven and we're getting new nightmare instead. I can see why people might've gotten kind of annoyed by that, um, that he was not playing the dream stalker from Springwood. There was this yeah. entity, you know, whatever. Did he give the entity a name? I forget. No, he just says there are evils. Yeah, it's just an evil entity that, that could be captured. And now that they're not making the movie, and again, that's a, that's kind of a weighty, brainy concept. And I'm not even sure if I fully understood it at 14 when I saw it originally. I'm sure there are others, even maybe even younger than me, who are you know just as lost, and even older than me that were just as lost by that idea. You know, on the surface, it just seems like Freddy Krueger, the guy that killed. You know, Nancy and the guy that killed Kristen and the guy that killed Joey, you know, all these characters is breaking through into the real world. But it's not. It's it's this entity using the idea of Freddy. Yeah. 
I, I get why it threw people off, but I also feel like it's so much more adventurous and interesting. Oh, yeah. What's being brought across here, it is the adult nightmare in Elm Street, where um, instead of adults being the idiots, the, the pansies, the people who refuse to believe and acknowledge that anything wrong is happening, it's the adults who are getting it. And uh, because they also have the sin of participate, participating in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And it's like Wes Craven is exercising the entire endeavor out and New Line paid for it. And thank God they did, because this is a damn good movie. More people should see it. I, I would say that, that it's the only one besides the, the first two that I thought was genuinely creepy. Now, there, there were a couple... There were a couple moments where I was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to pretend I didn't see that scene. Like when when uh, uh, Miko Hughes, Freddie is speaking through him and the kid dead ass sounded like Donald Duck. And, it, and it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I realized it's a little kid, you know, he's trying to do some sort of red rum thing. And then that, that's fine. It just, you know, I thought that maybe they should have done a little. You know, little pro, you know, little fixing and post of his vocal effect in that scene. Mm-hmm. But the scene in the hospital where where Freddie is kind of rising behind the the uh, the babysitter, yeah, that's really well done. And and you know you're kind of getting it from uh, uh, was Dylan was the kid's name. You're kind of getting it from his perspective, so he looks like he's about twelve feet tall, and he's just kind of slowly looming up behind her. And I was like, that's that's really creepy. <laughs> that's yeah. that's very well done. It's the first, I mean, it has to earn points because it is the first time that Freddy's been genuinely menacing. Oh, yeah. Instead of a game show host who happens to kill people to cheer them up, like we saw in four and five, where he's feel good Freddy, there's no feel good Freddy in this. He's, yeah, I mean, he, he, at one point he, you know, he sticks out his tongue and kind of like wraps it around her. And I was like, okay, I'm waiting for the inevitable, you know, give me a kiss, baby, or, or something like this, some sort of wise act. And he doesn't. I mean, it's no. it's still kind of funny because it's, it's just, you know, a somewhat ridiculous effect. And he's all like, ugh, ugh, ugh. <laughs> as somebody actually would be if their tongue suddenly came out really long, like like a like a Sylvester the Cat effect and started wrapping around somebody. But, you know, the wisecracks are at a minimum. And 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 I appreciate that because goddamn by 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 Freddie's dead, he I just wanted so much for him to just shut up for a couple of minutes. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, and nothing you know it doesn't get dated because of that. It's not. He wasn't doing like a lot of pop culture for the time references. You know, we didn't have Jaja Gabor showing up or 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 you know Roseanne and Tom. You know, it's it's you know you could watch. And he doesn't it change not... costume. I mean, for that was one thing. That Freddie's dead. I mean. The first time we see him, he's dressed as the Wicked Witch, and it's like, what the right. fuck is this? You, you can you can watch this and not think other than looking at other than you know, the state of, of phone technology. Oh God, it's the nineties. Yeah, they're not running on fumes. No, no, no. It it the tank is full of ideas in this, and uh, it shows. It just there it feels like there are real stakes. It feels like there are real emotions. It feels like there's real ideas. And, you know, yes, of course, you know, effects don't age well. You know, some of the model work is a bit iffy. Some of 
some of the fire effects are a little, mm, but you kind of forget all that because it's really swinging for the fences. It, when it comes down to Wes Craven's new ni- nightmare, like try some, won't you? Please, for the love <laughs> of God, watch just, this fucking movie. Just a little bit as a treat. <laughs> it's good stuff. Uh, so before we go, let's do some quick plugs. Uh, Mr. Collins, uh, where can people read and hear more from you? Yeah, at Birth Movies Death, um, I still do my, my weekly column, Collins Script, and uh, I still update Horror Movie a day when I can. And uh, yeah, and if you're in LA, you know, you can get the, 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 the sheer joy. You can talk all about it uh, <laughs> of me hosting a screening. I know that enhances a viewing experience when I come out and babble for five minutes before it starts when you just want to watch I the movie. I enjoy your babbling. I think you're a great babbler. Um, <laughs> doing Motel Hell at the end of the month. Yes. Oh, 40th anniversary of Motel Hell. I'm going to buy Kevin some tickets Connors and coming. fly out there. <laughs> that is I, a personal favorite. A little a little more up, up your alley for the for the podcast folk. Uh, where I, I've asked and they seemed open to uh, doing uh, because this year is the 40th anniversary of Friday the 13th and the 35th anniversary of New Beginning. And I thought since those are the two not Jason ones, I thought it'd be fun to do a double feature of those at some point <laughs> this year for Screamfest. Um, so hopefully that'll come yeah. together. Cause I think that'd be a fun double feature. Um, probably never been yeah. paired together before. Uh, <laughs> and never will they no. be since. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've said this numerous times. I'll say it every day if I have to. If you dislike New Beginning, do not make up your mind until you've seen it with a crowd. Because that is just, it's a completely different experience. And I've talked to people who have gone in being like, I'm doing this because it's a Friday movie on the big screen. And walked away like, oh, I get it now. So. (laughs) I said the same thing. I said the same thing about Cats. (laughs) (laughs) See it with a crowd. it's it's it's, It's a whole other level of experience. Brian, I'll take your challenge. When when New Beginning screens, I will show up. And hopefully, it is the same type of experience that I had with 3. Whereas, I didn't hate 3. I just I just didn't... Um, 3 also I, definitely I comes to I life better. I the verisimilitude of it. So if and it's then, in 3D. Yeah. And the person behind me had never seen it before. And I suddenly started to watch it through her eyes and her reactions. And... The joy of that third act, which I don't, people don't really focus on that third act. That third act's a hell of a fucking movie. Like, just that movie alone is fantastic. So, when New Beginning screens, I will show up and I will try to restrain my impulse to yell at the screen. Those two guys want to fuck Jason Voorhees' corpse. And I will enjoy with the crowd that sequence in which we watch a van drive across the screen. Four times. Four. <laughs> Hopefully, that plays really well with the crowd as it does in my mind. The best part of Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Uh, and Gina, where can people find you on these here internets? I am a, uh, a writer for The Spool. Um, that is thespool.net. I write about uh, TV and do some, uh, sorry, write about movies and I do some TV recaps. My most recent review is of the Netflix take on Dracula. 
uh, the first hour and a half, which I really genuinely loved, and the rest of it, you know. Um, <laughs> and I will also be starting to recap uh, HBO's The Outsider, uh, based on the Stephen King novel. So Ooh. that is the uh, the spool net, and I have my own website in which I write about movies and old TV and pop culture at GinaRadcliffe.com. And I am on Twitter under Porcelain72. Do it today, people. Check it out. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at KillByKillPod, Instagram, KillByKillPodcast, the Facebook group and page. If you want to talk about the movies in more detail, and we, of course, encourage you to do so, please rate and review us on iTunes or anywhere that you get podcasts. If it has an independent review, please uh, do us a favor. Do us a solid. Uh, Tell people you like the show. Even if you just kind of like it, tell people you love it. It, it would it would help us greatly. And of course, you can always, um, you know, flip us some spare coin if you got it at the old Patreon. We're doing fun things over there. What's happening on the Patreon front, Gina? Uh, we have a new patron. Uh, it is Stephen Gavis. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, we will also be uh, selecting our uh, our bi-monthly winner, uh, who, uh, for anyone at the $10 level, they have the opportunity to choose a movie for us to watch and review. So that'll be our next Patreon episode for probably be, uh, about two weeks from now. We try to we try to space them out so that they're between episodes of this. Uh, we're also talking about doing at least one or two commentary tracks. We just have to find the, the time to do so and figure out what we're going to cover. So that's probably going to be something that somewhere down the line probably closer to spring or summer but we're pretty excited about that yes and we and coming up this valentine's day of course kill by kill the uh, silk stockings unit after dark uh, (laughs) will be put into to to motion we've already picked the episode of silk stockings that we will be talking about uh yeah this is a really weird time at kill by kill time but uh, a really awesome time and really awesome time because the next movie after New Nightmare, we're continuing the great movie uh, train here. Uh, before we get to the hellacious uh, Nightmare on Elm Street remake, we're going to talk about Cobra. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's Cobra. We're just going to ease into it. We just need something. We need a little something a little comforting. Listen, we need some robot fashion shoots. We need some axe gangs. We need some pizza need scissors. Some- pizza scissors we need to see uh lavalier mics exposed just when you rip someone's shirt open and you don't do a take two all of it we're gonna talk about it all with cobra some great guests coming up so thank you so much uh and that does it for this episode so for myself and for brian and for gina bye-bye everyone bye